0: Guess what, Lions? For as little as $5 a month, you can get access to exclusive bonus audio content and help this program grow by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash support.
1: We, we give lots of free money to huge megacorporations all the time. That doesn't create a poverty trap. What creates a poverty trap is the prohibitive regulations that keep these people out of work. Welcome. Liberty Podcast. Here's your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare.
0: Welcome back, my little Liberty kitty cats. Hoping you will one day grow into big Liberty Lions. Now, if, if this opening audio portion sounds a little odd, a little different, a little echoey, it's because I'm recording in not very ideal audio conditions, to be perfectly honest with you. Uh, I just moved into a new place, and I'm in no way set up. I am sitting at a desk in an empty room, and you're definitely going to be hearing a little bit of echo. I hear it right now, so I know it's there. You might even hear a little airplane noise. Things are going to improve over the course of the next few weeks, but the show must always go on, and the show shall go on today. Just like the show goes on three days a week here at Lions of Liberty with three different shows and three different hosts. Of course, every single Monday, I bring you the original flagship Lions of Liberty podcast where I host great interviews as well as fun roundtable discussions in the form of libertarians in living rooms drinking liquor, which you'll be hearing again next week. So be sure to hit that subscribe button. You don't want to miss anything from me or from my compatriots, my fellow Lions of Liberty Host, Of course, Brian McWilliams brings you his weekly shot of comedy, culture, and liberty every single Wednesday on Electric Liberty Land. And John Odermatt wraps things up every week with his weekly look at the broken criminal justice system on Felony Friday. Hit that subscribe button. Don't miss a darn thing. Today's episode is episode Three hundred and thirty three of this program, which means you can find the show notes over at Lionsofliberty.com slash three three three. Let's get to it, folks. <laughs> All right. My guest today is an old friend from the Daily Paul days. Old 2008 Ron Paul libertarians will certainly remember the Daily Paul. He has been a guest on the show a couple of times, and uh, he's also been a guest on the Scott Horton show as well. And you can find some of his writing right now over at the Libertarian Institute. He also has a couple old articles published over at lionsofliberty.com. I am pleased to welcome the one and only – probably not the one and only, but James Riley. James, are you ready to roar? Let's do it. All right, rock on, man. Yeah, James Raleigh's probably a pretty common name in Ireland, I would think. So you're you're, you're the one and only as far as uh, you know libertarians that I met on the Daily Paul named James Riley. Let's <laughs> put it that way. Let's narrow it down yeah. a little bit. And, you know, James, one thing I said uh, a few months ago is that I really want to make a point of doing more sort of digging into philosophical ideas, uh, digging into the ideas behind the ideas of liberty, because even among people who largely agree on uh, you know a vast array of political positions – they often come come at things from very different philosophical perspectives. You know, I spoke to Stefan Kinsella a few months ago about argumentation ethics, and more recently Shane Whistler about uh, the way he arrived at his conception of individual rights through the application of reason and the implications of that. You know, there's lots of ways to get there, and since we've done this on a, a few prior episodes, but you know, you and I have talked about this on a few prior episodes. But since we've got a, a lot of new listeners these past few months, why don't you just give everybody a Cliff Notes version of sort of your path to becoming interested in the ideas of Libertarianism and uh, political philosophy overall.
1: Sure. So I've always kind of been inclined towards libertarianism way before I understood it as a uh, as a coherent set of ideas. And w- I, w- I was introduced to it probably when I was around eighteen, and I was just you know I, f- I was floored that something like this existed. But at the at the end of the day, it makes a lot of sense because really it's, it was just intuitive to me. And it would be absurd to think that I was the first person to come up with these ideas. But at the time, there was a sort of um, character to the way that libertarianism was manifesting itself in terms of activist politics. So a lot of people kind of know the whole story about libertarians, all they want to do is get high you know, you know, they're just they're just kids, basement dwellers who 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 want to legalize weed or whatever. And they're, I they're kind
0: uh, of they're stoners who are good with money. <laughs> it's like the stereotype. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and so I kind of bought into that at first, and and mostly because it just didn't seem pragmatic that I was that we you know we could ever bridge the gap in terms of politics and and that ideology, and then of course Ron Paul came around and changed my uh, changed my view, and then through Ron Paul I was really introduced to the heavyweights of uh, in terms of li- libertarian intellectuals, and ever since that it's just been a wild ride.
0: A wild ride indeed. And you know one thing I like about talking to you both on the show and offline or online, I guess you would say, is that uh, you're always trying to look at things from different angles. You're I wouldn't say you're. Not sure of your beliefs. I would say you're always challenging them. You're always opening to challenging them, always trying to look at things from different philosophical perspectives to help you sort of refine your own philosophy and your own view on a lot of things. So, uh, you've done a lot of writing, um, both, you know, for your own reasons and, you know, of course, over at the Libertarian Institute and, and over the years. But, you know, what I'm thinking we should start with something, maybe something not too controversial in libertarian circles, something, something that won't ruffle any feathers. Like maybe, I don't know, some, some criticisms of the non-aggression principle. <laughs> <laughs> that shouldn't get anybody riled up, right?
1: <laughs> That's really you know I wasn't sure because you, we didn't discuss this before we went live, and, and so I wasn't sure if you were if you were setting me up with a with a softball or, or not. Um,
0: so okay, I, I roped so, you in there, you know, the old rope a dope.
1: <laughs> so the the non aggression principle is interesting. I was a an absolute devotee of of sort of the modern American libertarian conception of of non aggression and property rights. Until I noticed, and it was really the Daily Paul. It, it was this one guy on the Daily Paul that went to work every day to just pick at all of us. And you probably remember oh, him. Man. His name was I Bill Three. I, th- I can't three. remember the name. What was that? Bill Three.
0: Yes. Yes. It, but it was like the, yeah, it was like, there it was was, it, was the E facing the other way or the three was facing the wrong way? Something weird like that.
1: Yeah, it was, it was you know, it was a moniker. I, I, I don't even know.
0: No, I, I, I remember this vividly
1: man he would just you know he was a, a real like testosterone driven sort of uh, alpha alpha male challenger who was always fighting to be at the top of the dominance hierarchy but he he made some really good points and through arguing with him i i had to i had to be, begin articulating my view in a way that made the non aggression principle not so essential to the way that I packaged my libertarianism and then through reading the you know through reading the works of of a lot of other historians and philosophers both libertarian and otherwise I realized that there are what I consider to be some some really serious flaws in terms of the non-aggression principle as an axiomatic truth that I just couldn't I just couldn't reconcile and so really since you know for for the last few years I've kind of viewed the non-aggression principle as a as a neat little tool or a a way to explain a way to explain some things but it's not it doesn't serve as a philosophical underpinning of my own views.
0: All right. So why don't you d- tell us a little bit more about, you know, why you arrived at that conclusion and why you would criticize those who take that as the foundation. Now, you know, I kind of agree with you in a sense, like I, I don't disagree with a non-aggression principle. I won't say like, this is an incorrect way to look at things, but to me, it's not a starting point. So is that the way you see it? Or do you actually see it as something that actually just is, is actually incorrect on its surface?
1: Well, okay. So, so the first, the first thing that, the first part of the non-aggression principle that became a challenge for me was the the packaging of the preconception of property rights and justice in property acquisition. I believe in property rights. I like having property. I, you know, I find the libertarian property, the, the economics of of free trade and and just acquisition of property rights through Lockean homesteading. I find that to be a great way of organizing society, maybe even the most effective way of organizing society, but it demands a sort of uh, well, so I mean, if you think about it in terms of a moral principle, right? So justice of uh, justice of property acquisition, well, you have to accept that there's lots of conceptions of justice. Um, There's lots of ways that people or lots of things that people feel are just and unjust and, and often that manifests itself in social relationships and sometimes property rights doesn't really enter into it or sometimes people believe like in their, in their heart, in their soul that certain relationships with regards to property rights are oppressive in nature and so unjust, uh, you know, actively unjust. And so I I, I searched for ways to reconcile that. And, you know, the, um, you were saying that you brought Kinsella on a few months ago and talked about argumentation ethics, and that's sort of the standard libertarian attempt to to try and justify to justify libertarian conception of property rights. But I find that it it for me it did a poor job in doing so because it, it leaves a lot out. So
0: why don't we dig a little further into that specifically then? Like what is it about argumentation ethics itself? And I'll go back and link to uh that episode with Seva Kinsella in today's show notes so people can go and listen to that that you know full his full spiel on that one. But uh what are some areas where you just don't see it as, as satisfying?
1: Right. So and I'm gonna be careful. I would really encourage your listeners not only to to read and to listen to Hoppe. Describe. He he reads his paper online. If you're interested in, re- in listening, but also he he's got it published, and many people have explained it. So it would take me the rest of the episode to try and flush it all out. Sure.
0: I mean, I did almost an hour with kinsella on just <laughs> that, and we probably could have kept going and going and going because there's just there's a lot to dig into, and it's it's hard to try to find that balance between doing something justice and not taking five hours. <laughs> so.
1: yeah. Right. So I find that argumentation ep- uh, ethics, the starting point is really, really good. I uh, I think that argumentation ethics does a good job in making an argument for self-ownership, ownership of basically my autonomy and my right to my autonomy, my right to my control of my body and and my actions and, and what I do. But then Hoppe makes... Basically, he makes a utilitarian argument after that. So he, he makes the case that when we basically enter into conflict, that we have to accept the legitimacy of the person whom, with whom we're in conflict, the legitimacy of their ownership over themselves because the conflict re- resolution requires that. Right. So that's sort of an a priori truth that if I'm interested in resolving a conflict with you, that I've already recognized your right to yourself by my willingness to hear your. Your argument, right? right?
0: And when you say conflict, you mean, uh, we disagree on either the use of certain property or whatever it is we're arguing really when it comes to, uh, you know, the point is you're putting forward an argument as opposed to just using violence. And by putting forward the argument is, is the, how argumentation ethics would say that you are sort of, you are basically expressing your respect for the ability of your opponent to argue. And, you know, all the implications of that eventually lead to individual rights. <laughs>
1: Well, right. And so I think that, that that's a really, really compelling case in as far as it goes. But I don't think that, that you can necessarily extrapolate property rights from that. Now, um, Hoppe makes basically a utilitarian case for why it should be. He he suggests that whatever these rights are, whatever these individual rights are that we're, that we're agreeing to need to be uh, universalizable. They need to basically, do a good job of resolving conflict, and they need to apply to everyone uh, and they need to be clear and distinct. But I don't see how you couldn't make a case for another set of individual rights. I mean, and uh, in, uh, in a variety of ways. So there's a couple of things. For instance, we could demand a degree of respect from our opponent as manifested through the names that we call them. So, for instance, we could demand. That if we we identify as transgender or dragon kin, whatever that are you know we could make a case or an argumentation ethics case that uh, our opponent should respect that, you know, or any sort of positive obligation that Hoppe tends to ignore, and and so and so too do the the people who um, use the argument, and they have sophisticated arguments for for why um, positive obligations aren't why they don't fit. Although I would say that they leave out. Cases where they demand positive obligations from society, right? Because it's an imposition on society. Uh, Argumentation ethics is is an imposition on society that they should respect these individual rights. But then again, they require a positive obligation with regards to honesty, let's say in dealings. So I'm not allowed to defraud you, right? But if I defraud you, I mean, to what degree am I just letting you? do what you will with your property using asymmetric information and me taking advantage of the fact that you might not have all the information that I have. I mean, that's entrepreneurship in its essence, right? Is I have an insight into, and I am able to anticipate the value in something that, that someone else might not anticipate. And so I'm able to use those resources to achieve that. And then I'm able to make profit and that's entrepreneurship in its essence. So why is there a special case in terms of dishonesty or fraud? And where where do we draw the line there?
0: Well, I think there's a well, – I mean first of all, I think we need to make a very important distinction between just general dishonesty, which I, I don't think really fits necessarily into libertarianism or not. Uh, I think a lot of libertarians would say like it's perfectly dis- – Perfectly libertarian to, say, uh, lie to the police if you're pulled over for – and you're you're about to be thrown to jail if you admit to having a pot or a gun or whatever it is in the car. And in that case, it would be perfectly fine and perfectly moral in that sense to be dishonest as opposed to fraud where that's active deception that would remove the property of another person. and I I know you understand the distinction, but just want to kind of put that out there for, for listeners who are newer to these ideas.
1: Yeah. Uh, right. And so, but uh, so let's leave aside the fraud, the fraud case for a second. Then you start thinking about, well, okay, if libertarianism and it's, you know, and it's basic form is a, is a, is a conception of justice that packages in a, a predetermined or preconceived notion of justice and acquisition of property uh, and in a, a particular way of acquiring property. Right. So it's not as simple as just homesteading, right. Because you can exchange property title but you can't do it through fraud. You know, it's not as con- it's not as simple as as just saying that you you earn the fruits of your labor, right? But even let's move away from that. There are lots of other ways that justice is kind of manifested in the in the human psyche. So, for instance, I might find it I might find it in unjust to see bullying, right? And so, to, is bullying a violation of the non-aggression principle? Well, you know, I mean, might depend some people... on
0: uh, the nature of the bullying, I guess, and, and that's another case where bullying—that term very subjective you know bullying might just be i just called james a jerk like you're you're a big jerk and now you might think i bullied you just now but others might define bullying as well it's not really bullying in the sense of a a a violation of the non-aggression principle you might say unless there's physical violence or pushing or shoving but it's an interesting point you bring up because this was actually i know something that we talked about on our felony friday show last year um you know there's the case of that girl who was I, i guess people were saying she was bullying her her boyfriend who was suicidal and basically just telling him to kill herself, uh, to kill himself, and eventually he did kill himself, and she was uh, charged and I believe convicted of uh, convicted of manslaughter or murder. I'm not sure the you know the specifics of the charge off the top of my head, but that was basically no you know from a libertarian standpoint. If you went straight down the line, there was no violation of the non-aggression principle. I, I mean that's very clear if you go textbook. Uh, I think on that, but when you really dig into it a little deeper, I mean that and that's a complicated case, but it's an example where at least society, at least our society, and many people in our society. Definitely see what she did, and that level of bullying, which involved again no physical violence whatsoever, as a uh, a rights violation, so to speak. She's being punished as if she has definitely violated someone's rights,
1: right? And I think that you could make you know, and I think so. For me, my litmus test is: I think about it in terms of a jury, right? So if a jury of my peers, and I, and I don't mean like the way the actual juries work in the state court system, where there's lots of <laughs> where you know they have a variety of ways that they can kind of manipulate things to, to reach a verdict that they're in the state wants.
0: Oh yeah. But I mean, I, I've been to jury duty. I haven't actually participated in the jury, but uh, one thing that struck me, uh, little, obviously this is a little tangent here, but one thing that really struck me was that, you know, they gave you a list of questions. Some of them involved, you know, your, your past encounters with the police or your thoughts on the police bias. And all I did was answer them honestly. And, uh, I was summarily dismissed pretty quickly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, right. And that that's that that is pretty funny, but I want to keep stay on my on my track here. So if I my my litmus test for whether or not it's justice tends to be, or at least at this point in my life, used to be I just check it against the non-aggression principle. But I found that to be wanting, and at this point, all I do is I just think twelve guys, just like me, guys or gals, people that I would respect, right? If I made a case that this is what happened, and they are reasonable people. How would they how would they fall, right? How would the chips fall with regards to that dispute, that particular dispute? And oftentimes, I find that it doesn't necessarily line up with the textbook non-aggression principle. And once you make a concession f- for that, well, then you have to concede that justice, while there may be some sort of objective reality, some j- objective truth in regards to justice, in terms of social interactions, at least, we have to make compromises – in terms of what other people that we're interacting with on a regular basis think about in terms of justice, right? So if the people that I interact with on a regular basis believe that it's not okay to bully, and this is what we all agree, or at least what we've all come to accept as a as a as a common definition of what bullying is and what inappropriate bullying is, well then, you know, then that's that's what we decide the law is going to be. And so maybe the law doesn't necessarily look like the non-aggression principle, the libertarian natural rights, property rights, argumentation, ethics picture that we get in the literature, maybe it looks a little different. And this is stuff that we've talked about in, in previous shows, where there have been historic societies that had things very close to what we would consider libertarian natural natural rights, property rights schemes, yet they had positive obligations in a variety of different ways. Another question or another sort of topic that that turned me in the direction that I've been going recently is the idea of intellectual property, right? And so there's a strong libertarian case against intellectual property, especially if you believe that what I do with my property, right, whatever it is, that I have ownership of that. And so if I choose to copy what someone else does, however, in whatever way I want to do that, then I'm, I have every right to, and I have every right to monetize it. I have every right to sell it, but I just can't see that that's acceptable. For instance, if someone publishes a book, if someone takes all of the content of that book, right, let's say you publish a bookmark and you publish it and it's out for a week. And then within a week, someone's taken all the content of that book, right. And done nothing, but taking your name off and putting his name or her name Right? I don't think that twelve reasonable people on a jury would say that's okay. And I think what they would say is that no, that's unacceptable behavior that we don't agree with, and we're going to punish you for that. We're going to uh, make sure that you make amends. You, you know, and maybe a reasonable people might not send p- folks to jail at, to in prison to die after twenty years or whatever. They might do some sort of restitution system. But at the end of the day, I don't think that type of behavior would fly. And so I don't think that the non-aggression principle is sufficient in dealing with that. Now again, once you open the doors, well then there's a whole there's a whole plethora of ideas about justice that you have to consider. and what I've kind of what how I've boiled it down, how, how I've synthesized all of this that I've been discussing this last 20 minutes or so is that what really matters is that we all decide we all agree to the rules of the game and then we just follow them right?
0: And I think a lot of people would say, well, I love that idea that we all just agree to the rules of the game and then we, you know, we plow forward and society works great. But then you look around us and you see, uh, you know, you see people with very uh, socialist ideas. You see in in a country like this anyway, I think it's very difficult to have rules of the game we all agree on in a like a 300 million person nation kind of thing. But what you're saying there, I think applies more in the way I think society would be best developed, whereas the power lies. Within cities and communities and city states and and private property owners and that sort of thing who come together and sort of like you said agree on the rules whether that's through you know, a series of contracts or what have you um, and I, and a lot of uh, people will object to the the, um, the sort of a uh, comparison to HOAs and a lot of people hate HOAs but it sort of is a framework because you know how how do you agree on things without like you said some some kind of agreement whether that's a contract or an overriding agreement that a community already has when you move into it. There's a lot of ways to do that. I I don't think voting, and I'm sure you don't either, voting among 300 million people about the rules is the way to go.
1: Well, certainly. So I would definitely say that if you asked me what type of political action I would like to see in modern America, it wouldn't have anything to do with this, right? right? I I would say let's end the wars at home and abroad, right? I would say let's repeal the types of prohibitive Restrictions on employment that keep minorities and basically the near permanent underclass that we've created in this country through prohibitive labor regulations and and safety regulations and all that kind of thing, we repeal all those so that these young entrepreneurs can can actually enter into the labor force in a meaningful way, and then just create a little bit of liberty in my life today. Like th- those are the things that I want to do. That's I, that's uh, a roadmap for political action. That sounds in like the an awesome uh, political platform. Well, right. I mean, then I think a lot of people would agree with that, you know, And, and, and notice that I didn't put the welfare state in there. I don't care about the welfare. They print so much money, Mark. They print so much money and they spend it all on bombs. All right. The few cents that go to the underprivileged in this country that we've created are not the priority.
0: But yeah, no I'm with you. I mean, we've talked about this a bit before. It it drives me completely insane. And look, there's a lot of reasons to criticize the welfare state, to, you know, criticize how it may keep people in poverty more than it helps them. But um at the end of the day, the amount of money spent on the welfare state overall is a tiny 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 drop in the bucket. So why why spend our time coming across as nasty selfish assholes who just criticize the poorest people in the country? While leaving aside that 99.9% of that money is really wasted, like you said, on bombs, on the military industrial complex, on corporate welfare, on massive, massive things that are to me much more of an injustice than a poor push person getting, you know, 40 bucks a week for food.
1: Right, and the thing, and two, we, you know, uh, so the the whole idea about corporate welfare, they, we, we give lots of free money to huge mega corporations all the time. That doesn't create a poverty trap. What creates a poverty trap is the prohibitive regulations that keep these people out of work. That's what we need to start tearing away if we want to deal with the crisis of poverty in, in America is deal with the real, the the real things, the real pieces of legislation, the real rules of the game that are keeping these people out. Right. And that, and that's what, that's really where our focus should be if we're concerned about, uh, about poverty in America. But now, so that's, that's my political platform for, you know, for the, for the, <laughs> for the 21st Riley century. 2020 campaign. Yeah. Yeah, sure. No, but so what I would say is that if I had my ideal society, I don't think that it would be a territorial. I don't think that we would have territorial free associations, right? So the the idea of an HOA or, 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 you know, some sort of compact, some sort of land compact uh, scares me a little bit because it starts to demand things of me while I'm, while I'm inhabiting that space where I can't just move I, I can't just switch affiliations or switch allegiances to a, to a, to another free association. So let's say I'm in a I'm in a I'm in a little city state and I inhabit a space like right in the middle, right? And then I realize that the rules of the game have just gotten out of control. Well, now I have to like leave. I have to leave and I have to leave my land property there. I'm a little wary of that. That sounds an awful lot like a state to me. Uh, my vision or my dream sort of utopia and yes, I know what I just said. I said my utopia.
0: <laughs> Everyone's got their own utopia. I mean, ideally to me and I'll let you continue, but just just on that point, like to me, I ideally in like my my utopia, you would be able to leave and it, and hopefully it wouldn't require physical removal of yourself from that area. I mean, I'd like to see um more of a a place where there's overlapping political affiliations or what that's, have you well, or that's, yeah. or non-affiliations within certain territories or gra- geographic areas.
1: That's what I believe in is sort of this sort this idea of overlapping jurisdictions, mm-hmm. this polycentric law, and that's manifested itself often throughout history, right? So, for instance, in 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 city states in the Holy Roman Empire, let's say in the fourteenth and fifteenth hundred you had overlapping jurisdictions. So you had guild law. You had people who belonged to a guild. And they were they were responsible to their guild for a, a variety of behaviors, but that didn't mean that they weren't allowed to interact socially with other people from other guilds or other you know. Right. And and there was university law, and then there was the uh, the sort of overarching burger law of the city, and all of these. It got a little complicated, and it, and it wasn't the the most th- thoroughly worked out system. But I don't think that that's necessarily an indictment on that, because really the question isn't whether or not it's better in relation to what we have today the question is whether or not it was better in relation to the feudal system that was operating out in the in the landed areas where you had aristocrats right, who were right. who could conscript you know their peasants to go fight and die and take all their take all their property and, and and agriculture in terms of agricultural produce so it's the wrong comparison as austrians like to tend to point out when when people make when when people are thinking about these things but so you have examples of polycentric law throughout history, and 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 you have examples of people inhabiting the same space, but with different political allegiances, and and I don't think that that's necessarily an unworkable, unworkable idea. And then of course the way that these the way that those communities would would interact. So let's say I was a part of the knife maker guild, and you're a part of the candlemaker guild, and I stole your TV. Well, <laughs> that's sort of the libertarian <laughs> example. I stole your some candles. I don't it's like know.
0: a Bob Murphy example. You came and stole my TV and now we got to go, go to our, our private courts, our representatives to uh, to sort it all out. Our guilds well, right. in this case.
1: Well, so we go to our guilds and then our guilds come together and then you know, sort of – at this point, I, I default to the Friedman model because I think it's probably the most worked out sort of – well, then they go to a third-party arbiter and – there's a law of repeat dealings where they're able to 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 come to a resolution and obviously if i get into too much trouble my guild eventually says listen we're taking away your knife making permission and we're ta- <laughs> and we're also taking away all of the legal protections that we've been guaranteeing you
0: and a minarchist uh, critic might say well what's going to happen there is the knife makers and the candle makers are just going to go to war with each other and everybody's going to die <laughs>
1: Right. And, and which is, which is patently absurd, right? Because we know in history that it didn't work out that way. Were there ultimate arbiters in a sense? Yes. But that's just the one example that I'm using right now. There's lots of examples of Bedouin societies or other, other feud societies, rabbinic law, for example, right? So you have, you have in the same period, you have Jews living and they have their own societies, that they're living in and they interact with the rest of the world, but their, their, their interaction is conditional, but yet they have political jurisdiction over themselves. Right. And it's non-territorial, right? It's, it's actually ethnic. It's an ethnic sort of allegiance. Hey guys, you might remember that I recently said that this is the libertarian moment
0: and that we need more people to stand up and run for office. Now, if you're tired of watching Liberty erode and you plan to stand up and run for office, I want you to call on a team that has over 20 years experience, Global Alliance Communications. They specialize in data analytics, identifying and mobilizing voters. They offer live voter outreach, data acquisition, compliance, recorded messages, text messaging with full social media touch points and teletown halls. Campaigns of all types and sizes are encouraged to reach out, and you can find out more by visiting their website at www.gacigroup.com or email info at gacigroup.com. James, one more thing I want to circle back to before we wind down is uh, something you've you've mentioned. I've seen both in some of your writing, and you briefly mentioned earlier in the show, when, in regards to the non-aggression principle, is that the general idea that in order for that non-aggression principle to work, for it to be just, you know, for us to define what aggression is, we have to, you know, first the property rights have to be just. Prior to that, you know, so you can't put necessarily put non-aggression first because you know we have to have a just method of of, understanding what property rights are or why property rights should be just and the society around us has to generally agree on that or we can't even define what aggression is or isn't and, and, and then it's just chaos anyway so I'm wondering what your thoughts are on you know that conception of property rights on how you know what from your point of view philosophically what the best way to arrive at a justification for property rights would be I know you've you know kind of touched on in your writing and I'll, I'll if you want I'll just post a, a link to your the article you sent me on this topic so people can fully delve into uh, your thoughts and criticisms on this stuff but you know basically society has to accept your property rights for them to you know not be aggressed against so what's what's your thoughts on how we should come to property rights or how we kind of sort out this idea of just property rights and you know how that filters our ideas of what just what aggression or non-aggression would be
1: yeah so uh, at this point i'm gonna make your i don't know if you have any reds red anarchists in your audience, but we got um, all, eh?
0: all sorts of types. <laughs>
1: <laughs> if, if, if you do, they're going to give a little cheer when I say that, uh, you know, I'm perfectly okay with establishing my it's, so it's got to be consensual, right? And so for that, you and, and in order for it to be consensual, uh, it needs to be non-territorial. So our political organizations need to be non-territorial and we all, you know, whatever organization we decide is best, uh, whatever way we decide to organize socially, you know, that's kind of it's about the consensuality rather than about the justice inherent in a particular view. Right. And I think the market, so I'm an Austrian, Austrian in terms of the the school of economics that I, I was gonna I say, believe, I could have
0: sworn you were Irish. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, and and Mises makes makes really incredibly sophisticated and complicated and beautifully simple. Arguments for how the market sorts all this stuff out, right? And so I don't understand why libertarians aren't more persuaded to let the market of law, market of justice, or of conceptions of justice work themselves out. And, you know, as Mises points out, it's not the smaller, the niche economy doesn't get driven out, it just serves fewer people. And sometimes you have to pay a little bit more for that. There might be, you know, I might live in a in a region in a geographic region where there's a variety of free associations, and some of them organize themselves democratically, God forbid, or they organize themselves like communists, or they organize themselves like capitalists, or they, you know, take take an approach that's similar to something that's more historical and less theoretical. As long as all of the people within that social network agree to the terms. And as long as they're able to switch allegiances, I think you've met the requirement for the prerequisites for a market to start synthesizing the subjective value of justice. And then we can see what, 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 you know, our, our, the laws that we, that we follow end up looking like. And I, I, you know, I really don't think, I wouldn't be surprised if they weren't exactly The libertarian natural rights, property rights laws that uh, we've all kind of accepted prima facie as, as the only valid or just system.
0: Well, I think astute listeners will realize that you are probably a pretty big David Friedman fan <laughs> and uh, I interviewed him as well about this very topic uh, so I'll, I'll post that in today's show notes as well and uh, you know, in general it's 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 all good food for thought and I think you bring up a lot of great points if you didn't I probably wouldn't have you on the show so uh, I'll, I'll continue to bring you back you know on occasion and definitely continue to shoot me some of your writing and uh, one more thing I wanted to ask you about because uh, you know it's, it's it's how we first came together it's what we talked about at the top of the show very briefly is uh, you know wh- what are some of your memories about about the Daily Paul and and how you stumbled upon that cuz in many ways i mean obviously it was Ron Paul and like his youtube videos and his writing and his his passion during that 2008 campaign that really first woke me up but then when you really get into the internet it's chaos but the daily paul sort of became i mean it was its own kind of chaos <laughs> no doubt about it but it, it kind of became a, a little bit of calm in a way a place that you can get through all the other noise out there and just go to Initially, just it was supposed to be your Ron Paul stuff, but it really became a a place for a lot of philosophical discussion, and I was able to work a lot of things out and, and make a lot of you know headway on a lot of ideas. Because ultimately, to come to conclusions, you need to be challenged. You have to challenge your views. You have to do so in a in a thoughtful, intellectual way. And for whatever reason, that that website seemed to attract a lot of people that that thought that way.
1: It did, man. Uh, the Daily Paul was was like my safe space.
0: <laughs> exactly, <laughs> totally. It was it was absolutely my my libertarian ron paul safe space
1: (laughs) but 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 you know what i was never challenged more than than when i was on the daily paul you know that was what was safe about it was that you could be introduced to ideas that are not only just uh, not only just you know on the index card of allowable opinion or off of the index card rather but views that were the society deemed reprehensible you know and and things that i consider to be reprehensible but like even to this day i remember reading posts where I'm like, I'm just awestruck that someone had the audacity to make that kind of case. And the thing was, people never responded to it with condescension. They never responded to it. I wouldn't
0: say never, but not usually. Well, okay.
1: (laughs) You know, but they were were reasonable in their criticism. And, you know, at the end of the day, we're all there for the same reason. We just wanted to see Ron Paul. And I was really able to – I was really able – to articulate my view in a way that I felt comfortable. I didn't feel and feel afraid to say what I felt and I could, I could work out a lot of things that are just not, you know, things that aren't aren't acceptable in in and in, in in terms of the Overton window, right? So you have the Overton window which is the basically the index card of allowable opinion. That place was totally f- fair game and I'll tell you when he finally announced so he announced it more than a few times yeah, <laughs> that he was to was shut it a, down. Quite a
0: dramatic uh, <laughs> up and down emotional roller coaster for everybody,
1: <laughs> right? But when he when he finally changed, and it was when he changed, so he actually figured it out, right? He knew he couldn't shut the Daily Paul down. I, I got to it, he, he it became obvious to him after his like third or fourth attempt that he couldn't do it. He did the right thing for him, like because he wanted to shut it down. He did the right thing by changing the name and changing the domain, and changing the web layout, he lost a lot of devoted followers. And we're talking about Michael Nystrom, just for anyone.
0: Yes, and one of my goals is to track down Michael Nystrom and try to get him on a podcast this year. (laughs) I wanted to do it five years ago, and I couldn't make it work. But Michael, if you or anyone who knows you's out there, I'm coming for you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So when he finally changed the name, and then he finally announced the shutdown, it, it broke my heart i mean i was losing all sorts of family that had become family through my interactions with them online and it was like no i'm not an online person although facebook has kind of been consuming my life recently but i hadn't had facebook up up until i got out of the navy a couple years ago but man it it broke my heart and i tried to keep in contact with some of the friends that i made there you know i even have someone who lives in my town who is a daily parlor and we've, you know, we've, we've had a chance to catch up and it just, man, it's kind of a depressing story, but I'll tell you <laughs> what, wh- when, I, wh- while it was happening, it was such a, it was just such a great, it was a great, great place for people to share ideas and challenge each other and be, do it, do it in a way that, you know, made you really be careful about the way that you developed your arguments because Absolutely. you could. You could just so easily get pounced on by anyone anyone who was waiting. <laughs> and it waiting led to
0: now uh, three podcast episodes between you and I. So if nothing else... Hopefully, uh, well,
1: yeah, absolutely. I'm created some food
0: for thought out there for people. So, James, it's been a blast. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. I'm so glad to have you on and and dig into stuff. Some people might not agree with your takes. Some people might think you make some interesting points. But either way, uh, you know, I think it's the conversation is important. This conversation is always very important to be challenging each other and challenging the views and the views that we hold the most deeply to our philosophy. So, I uh, you know because trust me, everybody else out there is going to challenge them. So, if we can't do it with each other, we're we're going to be in some trouble.
1: Yeah. All right, Mark. Thanks a lot. All right,
0: James. It's been a blast. We'll talk to you
1: soon. All right, guys. I hope you enjoyed
0: my conversation with James, once known as Seamusine O'Reilly. We posted links to both of my previous interviews with him over at the show notes for today's show. Again, you can find those over at lionsofliberty.com slash three- 33 and of course if you want to support this show, there's no better way to do it than by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride where we pump out loads and loads of bonus content. I've fallen a little back because of my move recently, but over the course of the next few weeks, you're gonna get all the regular bonus content that our fans have just been loving. We're gonna have a new conspiracy corner, we're gonna have a new League of Liberty where I form a super group with other podcasters like Roger Paxson of the Lava Flow podcast, Johnny Rocket Adams of the Johnny Rocket Launchpad, and Chris Spangle of We Are Libertarians. So much more is coming as well as the finale, or at least the temporary finale, I believe, of Degenerate Gamblers post-Super Bowl edition will be on the way. So the bonus content is always coming. And most importantly, you're helping us reach that $1,000 goal that we are going to get by the end of this month. That's the goal. We're doing it. With your help, whether you're a current Pride member who's going to upgrade or one of our great new fans who's just going to chip in five bucks a month, give up a coffee, give up a beer, whatever it is to get us to the $1,000 a month goal, at which point we will start booking trips to libertarian events all around the country, starting with Pork Fest because our good friend Roger Paxson of the Lava Flow Podcast has invited us to be at and participate in Pork Fest. but we need you to help us get there. So again, please, please, please consider joining the Lions of Liberty Pride by heading over to lionsofliberty.com slash support, or you can give us a one-time donation a couple different ways. You can click on our one-time PayPal donation link on the homepage at lionsofliberty.com, or you can go to lionsofliberty.com slash donate and send us all sorts of different cryptocurrencies. We have a whole bunch of wallets set up. If you just want to send us some cryptocurrency and help us that way, you can do that as well. So we really do appreciate all the help of our fans and friends who are helping us grow the show and really spread the ideas of Liberty and keep these conversations going. Guys, it's been a pleasure. Don't forget to tune in this coming Wednesday to Brian McWilliams. He brings you another round of comedy culture in Liberty with Electric Liberty Land, as well as, again, John Odermatt wrapping up your week with his hard-hitting look at the broken criminal justice system on Felony Friday. Be sure to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss a thing. Until next time, folks, live long and live free.